You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, if uh, I had you make a list of, say, the top five or so most iconic scenes in the New Testament, uh, chances are on that list, one of those scenes is going to be in John 4, the, the, the story of the woman at the well. You guys know this story, right? So just a quick overview for those of you who are unfamiliar. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, they're leaving Judea, going to Galilee, and it says they have to pass through Samaria, which is not kosher for a Jew to do. They, they, this is not what, they, they don't roll with the Samaritans very well. So, but they go through it anyways. They get to a town in Samaria called Sychar, and uh, Jesus' disciples go into the city to get some food and things like that. Jesus is worn out from the trip. He's exhausted. He sees a well there. It's Jacob's well. He leans on the well, sits down there, and is just waiting. And as he's waiting, it says that a woman comes up. Now, this is uh, about 12 noon. This is not the time when you draw water if you're a lady uh, in Sychar, but this is the, the time that you draw water if you're a shamed lady in Sychar. And so she's coming to be by herself to get her water, right? She comes, uh, and as she's there doing her thing, he sees her, and he speaks to her, and he says, give me a drink. And she goes, why are you talking to me? Right? Because that's not what you do. It's inappropriate for a Jew to talk to a Samaritan woman like this. It's just not what we do. That's not how we interact. And do you remember what Jesus says to her? He looks at this woman who, remember, he's Jesus. He knows everything about her. And he sees this woman who has just a wake of broken relationships behind her, five husbands she's had, and the one she's with now isn't her husband. He's looking at her, this woman who's run to every other thing to satisfy her. And he says to her in John 4.10, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that's speaking to you, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He he looks at her and he just says, you are in proximity to someone who can truly satisfy you. But because you don't know who I am, you don't know how I can help. And so you run to these other wells, and they don't satisfy. And so what he does for her over the next few verses is he unfolds for her who he is, that he really is the Messiah, the one that her people have been waiting for for literally thousands of years. He's the one in front of her. And as it begins to dawn on her who this man really is, something changes in her. And John tells us this really interesting, weird kind of fact right there in verse 28. He says that once she realizes this, she, she left her water pot, he says, and ran back to the city to tell them who she found. Now, why does he include that detail, that she left her water pot? Why did he, why did he do that? I think it's because he's given us a picture of what's happening, what this woman is doing. She learned, when she learned who this man really was, she realized, oh, he, he is able to help me. He, he is the one who can satisfy the deep cravings of my heart. I didn't see it until now, but now I see it and I'm not the same. And what happened when she saw who he really was, she left the thing she was chasing before. She dropped her water pot. She followed him. How we see Jesus is everything. It's not just theology. Like when we, when we talk about having a good, robust understanding of the person of Jesus, I'm not just saying be smart so you can go to a party and impress people. That, that's not what, what is at stake. What's at stake is your ability to thrive in this life. Our knowledge of the person of Jesus is everything. It's how you're gonna grow as a Christian. It's how you're gonna thrive. It's how you're gonna make it into eternity. Whether or not you know him, the real him, determines everything about how you're gonna navigate this life and on into eternity. It's a very big deal. And in the book of Colossians, Paul is dealing with that very same thing. False teachers had risen up. Right? We talked about this last week. They'd risen up within the ranks of the Colossian church and they began to teach people false things. They began to diminish the importance and significance of Jesus and raise up the significance of all these other things. Uh, sets of philosophies, Jewish customs and rituals. You need some of this, some of this. You need some, some spiritual moments in your life, some, some a- worship of angels, mystical encounters. You collect all these things, get yourself some Jesus while you're at it, and then you'll be complete. And so Paul is on a mission in this book 
to help us see that Jesus alone is sufficient to meet all our deepest needs, that we don't need to go to any other well but him. If you only knew who was speaking to you, you'd drop your water pots and you'd come to him. And so in our passage today, that's, that's what we're doing. We are just, all we're doing is we're gonna hear about Jesus. That's what we're doing today. Who is he? What's he like? What's he up to? What's he over? That's what Paul is, he, Paul is giving us right here in the beginning part of Colossians, the, the top of the mountain of Christology in the Bible. Christology just means the study of Jesus. It doesn't get any bigger or loftier than what happens over these next five or so verses in the book of Colossians. It's, it is epic. Words uh, struggle to grasp the scope of what's happening. And the way he presents this high Christology, this, this big picture of Jesus, is by singing us a song. If, if you have your Bibles, get it out. I want you to see this. This is a Colossians, we're in chapter one. We're gonna be starting in verse 15, and as you're turning there, that is what he's doing. Most commentators agree that verses 15 through 20, that little section of five verses right there, is part of an early Christian hymn that Paul borrowed from the church and put in here, and all the indicators that this is a song are there. So the beginning and end phrases of this little block of music, they, they have the same language. Earth and heaven, Heaven and earth, That's, it frames the, the piece. Uh, it has repetition of phrases. So over six times in just these five verses, Paul uses the language of all things or everything. It's the same word in the Greek. Six times in five verses, repetition. There's repetition of, of sections. There are two stanzas in it with two distinct ways that he frames the, the uh, content. This is a song. It's a worship song. And the question is, why would Paul do this? If he's wanting to talk about Jesus and all that he is, why do it this? Why not just say it plainly? I think there's a reason why. I think it's because he's talking about something beautiful, right? And when human beings encounter something beautiful, what do we always do? We make art, right? That's what we do. When we see something extraordinary, lovely, powerful, beautiful, we, we always are, have, have this bent toward making art about it. That's why you'll never turn on the radio and hear a guy singing, girl, you're average. That's just not a, that's just not a song that people sing. It's not, it's not song worthy, but these truths about Jesus are when human beings encounter something beautiful, we make art. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's using poetry to tell us about the beauty of Jesus. And this song of his, these five verses, it has two stanzas. The first stanza deals with Christ and creation. That's the stanza one. Stanza two is Christ and the church. He narrows his focus a little bit. And then he's gonna apply it to us in the end. So that's sort of the movement this morning. So let's look at it together. Christ and creation, starting in verse 15. He says this. He is the image of the invisible God. The first thing Paul wants you to think when you think about Jesus is this, God. He is the image of the invisible God. That word image is the Greek word icon, which is where we get our word icon from. He's the image, the likeness of God. The book of Hebrews says it like this. He is the exact representation of his nature. He perfectly displays the God that we're talking about. This, this is the great dividing line between Christianity and all other considerations of who Jesus is. Is he just a guru? Does he just have some good advice for me? Like, like Jesus is, is, is like a really great camp counselor. I'm just gonna give you some truths, and man, just good on you, stick with it, kid. Is he doing that? Is he, is he a guru? Is he a good moral preacher? Is he, is he just a person like Muhammad or Buddha who's, who's showing us the path to God? The answer the scriptures give is no. He's not showing you the path to God. He 
is the path to God. He is God himself. He's the image of the invisible God. Listen to how John puts it. No one has seen God at any time, John 1.18. The only begotten God, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You want an, an explanation of who this God is that we're talking about? The text says, look at Jesus. Jesus, in his own words, John 14.9 says this, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. I mean, you can't be more explicit than this. If you're looking at me, you're looking at the Father because I am God. That's what he's trying to connect for you. If you're engaging with Jesus, the Bible wants you to know you're engaging with God. He's the very image of God himself. The early church got this right. In, in the first centuries of the, of the early church, this was the big issue. Who is Jesus? What is he like? How does he relate to the Father and the Spirit? And, and the early church got it right. You heard of the Nicene Creed, right? 325 uh, AD, we, we, uh, they, they wrote this creed that, that basically is dealing with the person of Jesus. And in it, they said this about him, that he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He really is God himself, the firstborn of all creation, Paul says. Now, now I'll stop here, but there's some people trip up here because that word seems a little weird, right? Firstborn sure sounds like born first. It's this word prototokos in the Greek. And, and uh, if it means born first, we have a problem. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but one of the prerequisites to being God is you weren't born. You just were, right? You always were. So if Jesus was created, if he was born in that sense, uh, that's gonna be quite a, a problem for us. It was, it was a problem for a lot of people in, in the early church. One of the earliest heresies in Christianity was over this very issue. A guy named Arius came along and he said, hey, these passages, you think that they're talking about uh, Jesus as God, but they're actually saying that he's created. He was a songwriter, and so he came up with a little ditty for it. He said, there was a time when he was not. That was like the song of the day. And it was actually super catchy. His followers started singing it and it became like a top 40 hit in the church at that time. There was a time when he, have you heard that song with the beat drops? It's amazing. And, and it, it's, it blew up in the church. It was so significant what it was doing to the early church's theology. That, this is a true story. The Christian church outlawed singing in church in the common tongue for a thousand years to squash this thing. That's how serious this particular heresy was. It's called Arianism. But the issues were, very, were things like this very verse. When Paul says firstborn, does he mean born first? Is that what that means every time? And the answer is no, it doesn't mean that every time. Let me show you why. Uh, one, just one example of many. Uh, Psalm 89, God is talking about the person of David, King David, and here's what he says. Uh, Psalm 89, 27, I will appoint David to be my firstborn, there's our word, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. So now we have to ask the question, well, if firstborn always means born first, how does it mean born first here? Does it mean born first? Was David the first person born? Is that, is that what God means? Well, no, we, that's, that's Adam, right? Maybe he was the first king. No, he wasn't the first king though, right? The kings of Israel came much later in history. Maybe he was the first king of Israel, and that way he's the firstborn of the kings of Israel. But we know that's not true either, right? Because that, that title goes to Saul. Maybe it's saying that David was the firstborn in his family. Wrong again, right? He was not the first, second, third, fourth. He was the eighthborn in his family. He was the lastborn in his family. So in no way in David's life was he the firstborn of anything. And yet it says that God appointed him to be the firstborn. And then here's the, the, the phrase that clarifies for us what he means. He was exalted, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. David was first in what sense? In importance that David was preeminent in importance. He was the most significant and important over the kings of the earth. And the same is true for Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. He's the firstborn of all creation. In that, he is supreme over all creation. That's what he's saying here. And to prove it, Paul gives an argument. Look at verse 16. 
He says, for, now that word's important, that means because, what I just said about Jesus being firstborn, I'm about to prove why it's true. He's the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Now look at the logic. He is the firstborn because he made everything. Do you see, do you see what he's saying? You, you cannot be a part of creation and have made all of creation. That's a logical fallacy, it doesn't make sense. In fact, this is such a Jesus is God verse in the Bible, this is so problematic if you don't believe Jesus is God, that, that other religions and cults, literally, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, they literally change the wording of the scriptures to accommodate their view that Jesus wasn't God. If you go to this passage in a Watchtower Society Bible, which is their translation, it reads this, for by him all other things were created. They literally insert a word into the English that does not appear in the Greek text. Why? Because they know this is so damning to their case. Jesus really is the firstborn because all things were created by him. If it was all other things, that means he was created and then he made everything else. But it doesn't say other things, does it? It says all things. This is Paul's way to say Jesus is the maker of the universe. You can't be part of creation and also be the creator of all creation. But Paul, do you really mean all things? You mean everything? In heaven and on earth, yeah, but visible and invisible. Okay, I guess that's everything, right? I mean, like that's, what else can you say? Like if I was trying to tell you everything is everything, I would say everything up there, everything down here, everything you can see, all the stuff that you can't see, that's all him. He made it. I mean, that's, that's what he's saying. And then he says this really enigmatic phrase, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now stop here for a second. What is Paul talking about? Can I give you a Bible study tip? If you ever come across a, 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 like words in scripture that, that don't make sense in, in their context or you don't know what's going on, the best thing you can do is try to find places where those words appear in other parts of that same author's writing. Because when you see that, you can see how they use it in different contexts and it can kind of fill out the meaning for you. So I don't know about you, but when I read that, it strikes me as kind of random that he would put this here. I want to know what he means. So let's go and look around in some of Paul's writings to see what he's talking about. The first place I want you to look is just one page over in your Bible. Go to Colossians 2, verse 15. He's talking about Jesus' death and resurrection, and he's a fan of these handful of words. He puts it in this part of his letter as well, and here's what he says. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities... He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. That's interesting, but maybe not super clear yet. Maybe we don't know everything that's going on. Let's go to another one of Paul's letters where he uses almost all of the words from this very passage. Let's, uh, you can stay where you're at. I'll just read it for you. Ephesians 6, 12. Listen for the words, and you tell me what Paul's talking about. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What is Paul talking about? He's not talking just about earthly authorities. He's not just talking about Ellis County Courthouse. Paul is talking about dark spiritual authorities, angels and demons and demonic forces. Paul's talking about Satan himself. Now, why do you insert that into the things that he's created? Because you need to know who runs this show. That's why you put that in there. I don't know if uh, this is the, the the way you thought about things when you were a kid, or maybe you still do. When I was a kid, I had like a construction in my mind of like how this whole God and devil thing worked. And I, I don't know why this is super weird, uh, but, but I, I saw them like in their respective like command centers up there. And you know, they had just like a series of levers they were pulling. I don't know why it was like 1970s technology, but they're like pulling levers up there. And every lever they pull, something changes on earth and God's up to good stuff. He's pulling the good lever stuff. Satan's over here pulling the bad lever stuff. And, and God's pulling just a little bit faster than 
Satan and it's all working out. I know, I was a heretic. But here's the thing. Is that how it works? Is that, is that the, uh, the, the situation between God and Satan in the heavenly realms? The answer is no. That's not it all how it works. Satan isn't on Jesus's heels, like just barely keeping up with him and like giving him a run for his money. This isn't like, it's not like they're playing a game of chess where like Jesus and Satan are playing and Jesus is just like just a little bit ahead of him. Satan kind of comes up sometimes and then he makes this counter move and then he breaks. It's not like that. Jesus invented chess. It's his board. And he said, hey Satan, you can sit down. That's fine. Come here, buddy. Right? But it's, there's no threat. He's the grandmaster. He knows what he's doing, okay? There's no competition between, it's like, uh, it's like if you had an ant farm, and then one day the ants rose up in rebellion against you, and they started climbing their little ant tunnels, trying to make it to the top, and they're, they're tapping on the glass, they made little ant helmets, little ant pistols, right, and they're coming for you. What would you do if you saw that? You'd go, look at you little guys. They're cuties, little red devils. That's Jesus. He's not threatened by it. He's not scared of Satan winning. He's already won. Jesus owns everything. They're not a threat to him. Do you feel me on this? And listen, what does this mean for you? This means this. If you're in Christ today, that guy, Christ, you get to rest in the fact that your Savior owns the ant farm. He owns the chessboard. Nothing can come against him. Isn't that good news? Nothing is going to thwart him or throw him off his game. He owns it all. And by the way, if he's in control of every spiritual government, you think he might also be in control of our earthly one? Some of you need to hear this. Your ability to thrive does not hang on who's in the White House or which way the Senate flips or the composition of the court or what cases make it to court or what cases pass the court. Your hope, Christian, is in a person and his name is Jesus and he runs this show and nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing under the earth can throw him off track. We need to resist that urge to place our hope in any power that's not him, not in an elephant, not in a donkey, in the lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen? That's where we place our hope. That. We don't have to be intimidated. That's what he's saying. Because these powers, all the powers that scare humanity, along with everything else in the universe, Paul's about to say, are made by Jesus and for Jesus. Look again at verse 16. All things were created through him and, listen, for him. I don't know if you're a write-in-my-Bible kind of person, but if you are, I'd get your pen out, and you might just do what I did uh, years ago when I read this verse for the first time. Right next to this verse, I wrote next to it, the meaning of life. <laughs> this, oh, this verse, y'all. What a problem solver this verse is. We were just told in one sentence what 3,000 years of philosophical inquiry has been trying to figure out. Why am I here? What is this for? What is existence? What is my purpose? Answer, you were made through Jesus and you were made you were made for him. You were made to know him, to love him, to have relationship with him, to find your worth and your meaning and your value in him, not in your stuff, not in your looks, not in your job or your kids or your talents or your money or your spouse or your relationships. You find it in him. You were made for him. That is your purpose. And listen, I don't know if you came in here today aimless or you're watching at home and you just feel like, I have no purpose in my life. I, do, I don't know. Maybe you've been looking to that job, to that uh, relationship, to your kids to find meaning and purpose and aim and direction. And it's just not working. They're not holding up. Can I just tell you, your purpose is a person and his name is Jesus. You were made through him and you were made 
for him. Isn't that clarifying? That is so clarifying. Jesus is the maker of all things. He is the goal of all things. And then Paul closes stanza one by telling us he is the sustainer of all things. Look at verse 17. He says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the deists were wrong. Folks like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, these guys who kind of put forward this idea about God that he, there is a God and he made all of this and he put all the pieces in place, then he wound it up like a clockmaker would wind up a clock. And he set that clock a ticking and he sent it off and then he kind of went about his merry way. That is the understanding of, of how God works in a deistic worldview. But is that what the Bible teaches about how this thing runs, how we keep breathing and moving? Is that how it goes? Scripture says, no. That's not how it goes. Every molecule, every atom, every cell in your body is not being held together by the laws of physics. The laws of physics explain the orderliness of it, but you are being held together by the very word of Jesus Christ every second of every minute of every day. And if he stopped holding all things together, you would fling apart in a billion pieces. He is involved with his creation. He is intimately acquainted with us. He upholds all things by the word of his power. What a thought this is. Jesus does it. Are you guys starting to feel why, I'm, why I keep saying this is like the biggest passage ever? Right? This is, Jesus is the maker the sustainer and the end goal of everything that has ever been or ever will be. End of stanza one. That's a worship song, people. Then, he's not done. He, got, he goes to verse two, stanza two. And from here, he moves from Jesus' relationship to all of creation to his relationship to the church. Verse 18 says this. And he is the head of the body, the church. This is interesting. This is the first time in any of Paul's letters where he's used this specific language about Jesus. There's been other points in scripture where he's talked about the church being a body. We're all members of one body, but this is the first time where he connects Jesus directly to the church as its head. And you wonder, why does he do that? Well, remember what Paul's up to in the letter to Colossians. He's trying to convince us that Jesus is everything. That he's not just like a cool addition to your worldview. Like, I, I like centering breathing. I like yoga. I like healthy eating. I like Jesus. I got all these things. I'm good. He's not just a piece of it. He is everything. He's, he's all of it. So he's saying Jesus is as crucial to your thriving as a Christian as a head is crucial to a body thriving. Do, do you feel me? Do you guys know many headless guys out there that are just living their best life? Like just headless dudes at the gym, just benching 400, just pouring creatine down their neck hole, just ah! Is that happening? No, that's a really weird image. And his point is really clear. Without the head, the body's dead. You want a little limerick today? There, you can say that to yourself. Without the head, the body's dead. You can tweet that, okay? That's free. Without the head, there is no us. We don't grow without our head, right? It's so obvious that it's comedic. We're just, we just become a corpse. And listen, some of us want to be like headless horsemen Christians. You can, let me tell you, the Bible is saying that doesn't exist. There are no headless horsemen in Christianity. You're either connected to Jesus, like a head is connected to the body, or you are dying. Do you feel me? This is how lucrative he is to you and I thriving. He's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's that word again, firstborn. Now we saw it in verse 15. And you remember at that point, we learned that it meant that he is supreme over creation. 
right? He's the firstborn of all creation in that he created all things. Well, here he uses that same language, but now he uses it in the more traditional sense. He's the firstborn from the dead because Jesus really was, in order, the firstborn from the dead. He was the first person to resurrect glorified from the dead. And you go, wait, aren't there resurrections in, in scripture? There's other people that did that, right? There are people who came back from the dead, yes, but not like Jesus. Jesus came back from the dead having conquered death with a new spiritual glorified body that will never die, never decay. He's in the same body today and he will be for all eternity. He's in that body and in that sense, he's the firstborn from the dead. He started the chain reaction. He conquered death and he's the first one and guess what, everybody else who trusts in him, we will be raised from the dead. He, the Bible says he's the first fruits of those who have been raised from the dead. That in everything, Paul says, he might be preeminent. Here's what this means. The resurrection of Jesus, when you think about it, you should think about it like this. It's the final straw that seals his supremacy over all things. We already know he's Lord of creation, right? He told us that. He's, he made everything. And we know he's Lord even over the demonic forces, even Satan himself. But there's one thing remaining that still poses a threat to you and me, and that is our death. It's coming for us all of us. It's inevitable. It's coming. Sooner or later, we will all be there. And what Paul is saying is that in the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus became supreme over that too. He defeated that too. So you don't have to fear it anymore. You don't have to be intimidated by it anymore if you're in him. You feel how we're running out of things he's not over, right? It's like this is the end of the list. Uh, heaven and earth, Check, made it all. Uh, demonic powers, check. And now, death itself, check. Everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Commentators think that this was probably Paul making a, a jab at the false teachers of his time. Because remember what, what they're trying to convince people of. They're trying to diminish the importance of Jesus and elevate the importance of all sorts of other things. So it's Jesus, yeah, get Jesus, but grab a little philosophy too. You need to kind of figure out things through this philosophical method. It's Jesus, but grab some Jewish law. You need to be keeping the Sabbath. You need to be circumcised. You need to do these things, but we're gonna grab those things. It's Jesus, but, but a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and then you'll be full. Then you'll be filled up with all the things you need to be a thriving, happy Christian. And Paul, it's like, he overhears that. He's like, oh, are you talking about being filled? Oh, I know a guy who's filled. His name is Jesus, and he is filled with all the fullness of deity. Chapter two says, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in him. The word is pleroma. It means full to the brim. There's no more room for God to get in because he is God. All the stuff you're looking for, point, is in him. He's a one-stop shop. He, he is Amazon for the Christian. Do you feel me? I don't go to mom and pop stores anymore because I can click that button and it's gonna be at my door tomorrow. I'm, I feel bad for him, but at the end of the day, that place, it just kinda has it all. I don't know what to tell you. And, and Paul is doing the same thing. He's saying, look, Jesus is the one place and the only place you need to go to to get everything you need. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And so you don't need to go elsewhere if everything you need is in him. If you knew who was speaking to you, you'd what? You'd ask him and he would give you living water. Why could he give her living water? Because he's full. He has everything she needs. That's the point. Verse 20, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the crescendo of the song. This is the last verse and it ends with a bang. He began by saying that Jesus made heaven and earth and he ends by saying, and he is reconciling heaven and earth to himself. It frames our entire passage. Now, what does he mean? Well, to understand this, we need to, we need to zoom back and understand the bigger story of what's happening throughout human history. We gotta go all the way back to Genesis to make sense of this. Genesis one, what do we know? We know God 
created the heavens and the earth. He made everything. He, he did it all, and all of it was good. Now, there's a Hebrew word for when everything is good. It, it's this word shalom. We translate it peace, but when we talk peace, we usually mean it like I'm not fighting with someone, but peace is a much more robust word in the Hebrew. The word shalom in the Hebrew has more to do with everything as it should be. That's what shalom is, everything as it should be. And there was shalom in the garden on earth in Genesis 1. And then two chapters later, everything changes. Adam and Eve sin and earth cracks and we lose shalom. Now everything is not as it should be. And I'm not just talking about us. We know that we're broken. I mean, that's, that's one thing the evangelical church is always gonna preach. Human beings are, are broken and sinful. And that is absolutely true. But did you know that that crack, that breaking, reverberated out all the way past you to the farthest black hole and star out there. It broke everything. Shalom over the whole creation was lost. Things aren't as it should be anymore. Labor is unfruitful now. Childbirth is painful. Relationships are difficult. So there's sicknesses and diseases and cancers and natural disasters and flooding and fires. It, we can feel this, right? You can, I mean, this is, Something we all can amen is that things are not as they should be. And what Paul is telling us is when Jesus came to earth, his mission wasn't just people. It was people, but it wasn't just people. It was even more cosmic in scope than that. His mission was everything. That's what he's telling us. Jesus has come to bring back shalom to everything. It's the Lord of the Rings. It's the Lord of the Rings. You remember uh, in the last book of the Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, Samwise Gamgee realizes that Gandalf has not died. Why does that sentence always sound so nerdy? Uh, he realizes that Gandalf hasn't died and he's looking at the man and he talks to him. And do you remember what he asks him? He looks at him and he says, Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer the Bible gives is yes. Everything sad one day is going to come untrue. The curse will work backward in reverse. Things will be set right. Every tear that you have cried, Christian, will be made up for one day. There is a day coming when all evil will be stopped, when justice will be perfectly doled out by a just God equitably, when all bodies will be healed, when all sicknesses will be cured, shalom is coming, everything as it should be. And this shalom, this peace that's coming, it's coming because Jesus, Paul says, made peace by the blood of his cross. It doesn't get more epic than this. At the cross of Jesus, he didn't just come to redeem his people. He did, and that would be enough to praise him forever and ever, and we will. But he came to reconcile heaven and earth itself, to set everything back as it would be and should be, and it will be one day because of the blood of his cross. He made peace by the blood of his cross. And that's how the song ends. That's how Paul wraps up this song. It's it just as big and as cosmic a vision of the person and work of Jesus as you could possibly paint. And then he turns and he makes it personal. It's like he, uh, it's like he gets off the pulpit and he comes down into the pews and he sits next to us and he turns and starts speaking this way. All of the, the personal pronouns and things change. It goes from third person to second person. It was he, he, it, it, now it is you. He wants you to know this thing I just talked about, this big theological sermon, I don't want it to live just up here for you. We're not brains on sticks. That's not what this is. I want you to know this has to do with you if you've trusted him. And isn't it good to know like that you need to make sure that what we're talking about makes it from here to here. Theology should always 
be applied to you. And he does that in verse 21. Look at it. He says, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. What's he doing? He's reminding us of our status before we met Jesus. That we were alienated. Did you know that? We were estranged from God. We, there was distance there. We weren't talking to one another. In Ephesians, that same word is translated excluded from the life of God. There's distance between us and him. We're not, we're not okay. We, we're not interacting. Now, why, why is that? Is that maybe just because he lives on the West Coast? I live on the East Coast. And we just don't have interaction as much. And I just forget to call the guy. Is it like that kind of thing? Like we're estranged in that way? Like we just haven't hooked up in a while. We need to, we need to get back together and start talking again. Is that, is that what it means? No, that's not what he means. Because he tells us in the next uh, two words what's happening. That we are hostile in mind in our alienation. Engaged in evil deeds. Do you understand that we are distant? because we want distance from God? You understand that? Like the Bible is so explicit about this. No one, I don't know or care if you think you do, this is true. No one apart from God working on them wants God. We are in rebellion against him. Our heart is resistant to his rules, his regulations, his person. You don't get to tell me what I do with my life. Nobody likes that. No, I build my castle. I build my temple. I'm going to build my world. You're not the center. I am. You're not on the throne. I am. We're hostile in mind. That word mind isn't, isn't brain. It's mindset. It's disposition. It's at the core of who I am. I resist you were alienated because we're hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. The things that we do in this life don't please God. That is our status before we met Jesus. And he wants us to know that because it's important to remember that about ourselves if verse 22 is gonna have the, the thrust that it needs to. You should feel at the end of verse 21 like, well, then I am gonna be smoked. If that's really my posture toward God, then I, I deserve only wrath. And yet there's a verse 22 and it says, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body or his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Do you understand that Jesus made you and when you rebelled against him, the maker didn't leave his creation? He could have. That'd be within his rights. You should not be getting reconciliation. But our God makes and when it breaks, he moves forward. And that's what he did here. We didn't want to go to him, so he came to us, his broken creation, and came to reconcile us that by the body of his death, he literally gave his life so you could have life. And it says he did this for a purpose. You see that in order to? That tells us one of the reasons why he reconciled you. you ever wanted, why, why did you do this? There's a lot of reasons that the Bible gives. There's actually a great book by Piper called uh, uh, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. I would highly recommend it to you. It's real small. It, and it outlines every moment in Scripture where it talks about the reason Jesus died for us. Uh, but here is one of them, and it's so important that you hear this. Why did Jesus come to reconcile you? In order to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. In the Greek, each of those words, holy, blameless, beyond reproach, they begin with an alpha. He, he's, he, what's he doing? He, it's a mnemonic device. He's trying to make you remember. He's saying these things are so important. I need you to find ways to put this in your pocket. These things are what Jesus is up to in reconciling you. He came to make you holy and blameless and beyond reproach before him. That's what he's up to. Now, let me clarify something. Um, When Jesus saves a person, when you trust in him, something happens in that moment. You are declared righteous, holy, blameless, beyond reproach. 
You're declar- that that de- declaration is, is pronounced over you, like in a courtroom, a declaration comes. You have a new title, and it is righteous, holy, blameless. It's called justification, right? But there's something else. That's not what he's talking about here. There's something else that God does after that. Because here's the deal. I can call you something all day, but have you changed? The day after you got saved, did you wake up and you were just floating on air, just serving everybody around you, washing people's cars for them, just quoting scripture like by memory? Are you doing that? You're probably not, right? We were train wrecks the day after we got saved, but we had a new title. And the title was Beloved, Son, Daughter, Chosen, His. But we hadn't changed very much. And what God is doing after our salvation is he's correcting even that. That every day, as we begin to rely on his Holy Spirit, as we begin to study his word more, lean on the promises of Jesus, he, little by little, day by day, is making you actually, practically, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The agenda of Jesus is to one day, when you go to stand before him in the last day, for you to stand unreproachable, that your life is a beacon of light, that the thing that was declared over you righteous, that made you right before him, is now actual in your life. It's called sanctification. And that's what Paul's saying here. Jesus died to make you, over the course of your life, presentable to him one day. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing day by day in all of us if something happens. And this is the last verse. And this is a big if. This is the, this is the biggest, uh, well, it's, it's certainly the first if in the book of Colossians. It's the first warning we get of what Paul is wanting to see happen in the people. And he says this, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting away, from the gospel that you heard. It's a conditional statement. What's the condition? The first part was, I'm gonna present you before me holy and blameless and beyond reproach one day. That's coming. I've reconciled you for that very purpose. Conditional upon verse 23, you remain right here. Now, folks get it twisted and we get scared when we see this because we're like, wait, am I earning my salvation? That's not, no, that's not what he's saying. There's, I, we could spend a, a whole day going over all the verses that, that talk about it is by grace through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. That, that is true. But he is saying this. The person who refuses to arrive at the end of their life fixed on Jesus doesn't know Jesus. They don't have Jesus. You should have no confidence that you're his if in the end you've had no sanctification happening in your life. Without sanctification, you will not make it, but you're not saved by it. He justifies you and he changes you and he's saying you need to stay right here because this is the prerequisite of God for you. You're going to be changed. And it's interesting with the words that he uses. He says uh, that we continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting. This is construction language, commentator says. This is building language. He's saying what you need to do with the things that you just heard about Jesus and the gospel, how he came to reconcile you, Christian, listen, you need to build your house on this man. You need to lay your foundation right here and never move. Do not shift from this. I remember I was house shopping with Kelly uh, a number of years ago when we moved to Dallas for the first time. And uh, we were looking for a place. I got a call from my realtor, and he says, bro, you got to see this. Uh, What's that? He said, I just found a 5,000 square foot house built in the 2000s on a cul-de-sac, $250,000. 
yes, I will come see that house. So we get in the car and we drive uh, to this place and we get out and it's immaculate. I mean, it's just like, I mean, it's MTV Cribs. I'm like, where am I right now? Uh, and we roll up and, and we go inside and it's just the, a whole thing. I'm just like wondering where is the, what's the catch? And then I begin to, over the course of the next five minutes, uh, start to see what the catch is because we're walking and as we're walking, we're actually walking a little bit more like this, a little bit more, and we turn a corner and we're a little bit, I'm a little holding onto the wall a little bit as I'm going. It's like, oh, this is, no, it's a nice dining room, but what's happening right here? And I look down and the floor is like a small earthquake had come. And it's just, and, and we're trying to walk around. It's, I'm expecting to open a door and just see like a, a room full of mirrors and clowns jumping out. It's like a carnival of crazy in this place. I'm just going, what happened? He's going, oh, well, they, they didn't build a very good foundation. And so it kind of moved uh, but the place is great. Look at the ceilings. Uh, fantastic. You don't always have to walk around. You can lay down a lot, you know? And, and I just, no, I'm not going to buy this place. Why? Because it was a beautiful house. Terrible foundation. It wasn't fixed, and so it shifted. And it became entirely unlivable. And that's what Paul's saying. You need to plant your house on this man and not shift from him. You need to build your life on the truths of Jesus and not move away from him. Don't become unlivable. You need to stay right here. The world is going to always try to diminish and belittle the importance of Jesus and raise up and exalt the importance of everything else. You need a little bit of this. You need to watch these networks. You need to stay on your feed. You need to be informed. You gotta know all these things. You gotta be religious. You gotta be spirit. You gotta do these things. And, and as we're doing it, we keep making our way further and further away from the one person who's full of everything we need, Jesus. And he's saying, you don't leave here. You stay fixed on Christ. Does that make sense? We stay here, we build here, we look to him, and as we see him for who he really is, we do just like the Samaritan woman did. We begin to drop our water pots. We begin to let go of the things that we thought would fill us, and we go to the only one who can. Let's pray. Father, You are everything. You are the most important being in the universe, Lord God. And God, how we don't acknowledge you as such so often. And we love to, to just add things to our tool belt, thinking that these will really get us down the road when all the while your son stands there waiting to be wanted, waiting to be trusted in, waiting to be asked, will you give me water, Jesus? And we want to ask him for that. Would you satisfy us? Would you fill us up? We need you more than anything. We need you more than anything. Lord, help us to be people who acknowledge that you are the creator, sustainer, and end goal of our very lives. And would we fix our house unshiftingly on the foundation of Christ? We need help, and we believe you'll help us do it. So we're asking this in your name. Amen.